Let's get into the word, okay? So today, uh, as she said, my name is Billy. I'm Pastor Billy. I'm the pastor of students and missions here at Bethany. But more importantly, I'm privileged to be able to come here and give the word today. So I'm looking forward to doing this. And I think God's got something good for us today. So we're in a, a series, Life According to Jesus. And uh, we're gonna be in Matthew 5 today. And what we're doing is we're covering the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, which is an amazing sermon. If, if anything, I would say it's one of the greatest sermons in the world out there, greatest sermons ever said to anyone of any type, and definitely in the Bible. And uh, I think this sermon really does an amazing job at showing us our human nature, how we struggle to live a life, what I would say, righteousness, a life that is righteous. And uh, that's really what we're going to be talking about today. But again, this sermon, there's nothing else like it. It's the most quoted and the most misquoted uh, portion in the entire Bible. It has my favorite chapter in the Bible, Matthew 6. And I think a lot of people gravitate with this because Jesus is hitting at the heart of what it means to be human and struggle to live to God's standard. And he's turning things up inside their head that make people like, huh, never thought of it that way, never thought of it this way. We might be saying like, okay, big, big whoop, you know, I get it. Jesus gave it a good sermon. Is that really that big of a deal? Well, you look at other sermons in the Bible and there's not even a comparison. They're, the sermons that are, other sermons in the Bible, they're truly incredible. And just to name a few of them that stick out to me, you have Peter in Acts chapter two. What, what, what did he do? First day of church thousands of people there. And it's an exciting moment. The Holy Spirit shows up. There's flames going over people's heads. People are speaking in tongues. There's all kinds of thing, crazy things going on. And yet that doesn't compare to the Sermon on the Mount. Which is, I mean, it's a great sermon. Don't get me wrong, right? You, you got, you got uh, uh, as well, Stephen, same thing, Holy Spirit overcoming him. As he's dying, he's giving a sermon to, uh, to the council. Pretty cool. Right? Still doesn't compare to the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion. My favorite sermon, or one of my favorite sermons, is Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, right? Which you can go to this day, it's in Athens, and he gave a sermon to the philosophers of old. That's pretty cool. John the Baptist even gave a sermon. None of them compared to the words of Jesus that we're going to be learning today. And that's something that's really remarkable about this. And I, man, we could spend a year talking about all the different things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. It is just so rich in the way it is. You would say interesting about it though is if you uh, just read it verbatim out loud, all three chapters of it, it would take you about 10 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount. Kind of interesting, but it's packed full of that much nutrients, right? And say, all right, Billy, keep it to 10 minutes, right? <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> But, but here's something else that's in common that with all these people, all the people I named, Peter, Paul, Stephen, even Jesus, you know what they had in common? They were killed for preaching the word. Man, yikes. <laughs> preaching is a dangerous sport, right? So don't stone me this morning, okay? But this sermon, though, is, there's none other like it. Like I said, it's the most misquoted one. And the Sermon on the Mount is not only the cornerstone and example of what preaching looks like, it's in direct contrast to the systems and the ideologies of the world. What Jesus is doing, it was so counterculture to what they were hearing that day that, that it was in contrast to anything they said. 
And he was saying things that like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who meek. And the one we're gonna be covering today are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. And each week we're gonna go through a different beatitude and compare it to other portions in, in the Sermon on the Mount that we're gonna be hearing. But again, what Jesus is doing is kind of interesting here because we think of blessed, okay, what does that even mean? In our world today, the language they would use is they would say, they would say things like happy. If we want a word that people use, people do say blessed, but I don't think they mean it the way we mean it. And it would say happy. And, and so if you could, if you could say, all right, these are the beatitudes, the one, the attitudes that we should have that God is calling us to, what does the world say is happiness? The attitude of happiness that we should have. And a guy named J.B. Phillips, he did a great job at this. And he kind of wrote the world's version of the beatitudes. And so I want to read some of these for you because they're kind of interesting. He says happy here, right? Blessed is the same. Happy are the pushers for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard boiled for they never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. And happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Quite contrast, you might be thinking like, ah, it's not really that stark, is it? Yeah, I mean, the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount, this mountain of a sermon, I think it does. I think it points to things, and this is why it speaks to our heart, is because the world tells us one way is blessed, and God, happiness, and Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I can tell you where true happiness is. Where's true happiness? And if I had to be honest, though, if I think about where we're at in our society today, and everybody's taking notice, right? If you turn on any channel, it feels like there's stark comparison, the world is saying that this is happiness and God is saying that this is happiness and they couldn't be farther from the truth from each other. It can be farther from each other. And so is that the truth? Are we farther away from those two things than ever before? Maybe. Or maybe there's nothing new under the sun. We'll get into that here in a second. But the world's standard for righteousness is so different, Right? But to understand what righteousness is, I think what we have to do is we have to define it. Well, there would be two definitions, again, if we did this, if we were trying to show the comparison in this. You know, the life according to Jesus. So what is righteousness according to Jesus in the world? What would they compare us? If I could say it this way, the world would say righteousness is behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Such behavior characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, or uprightness. Ironically, I think if you ask someone, and this is, that seems good, right? At, at the heart of it, man, that's, that's not bad at all. Seems okay. But if you ask someone in the world today, where does that standard of morality come from? Where did you get that from? They couldn't tell you. They'd say, well, you know, it's probably just the general uh, census of everyone. It's, a, you know, if we kind of took a poll, this is what people would say morality is. Ooh, that doesn't sound dangerous, <laughs> right? That wouldn't be a sliding scale by any means. 
See, the problem with that idea is that to honestly know what righteousness is, is to know what is true. You would have to be able to look at what is true and compare it to that. You'd have to have a standard that is absolute to be righteous. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says the standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. Man, talk about a standard, right? Talk about a bar that is impossible to reach. I mean, even Jesus, he says this in Matthew 5, 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who spent their whole lives trying to be outwardly righteous, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, these people who've dedicated their lives, they have no merit on their own to make themselves righteous, yet they try very hard. So where do we get righteousness? How do we find righteousness? I believe that it's found in the truth. And Jesus is contrasting this truth to say this. And he says it six times. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's almost like he's smacking them around. If you understand the context, he's saying, you've heard it said about these truths of the Bible, but you've got it all wrong. And, and they could say, and they did many times. They're like, who are you to tell me what to do? What authority do you speak on? He was the authority. And he said, you don't have to believe me. But he was saying he was the way, the truth, and the life. Talk about a statement. And there's like, I don't know if that's true. And yet truth embodied was looking them in the eyes. Kind of interesting to think of it that way. A listener wants their version though. That they want the uh, truth, but Jesus was clear that he was that way. He was that truth. And the heart of what Jesus is getting at here is he's talking about righteousness and he's calling out those Pharisees. They had the outer appearance of righteousness, but they had no real heart change. And if, if we're going to find righteousness, we have to find honesty and trustworthiness. Not just what we say, but what we do. And when we say something, we have to mean it. You know, and he, in the text we're about to get into, what does he say? He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's exactly what we're getting at in here today. And, and, and know this, like, listen, you gotta ask yourself this question. Who am I known for? Am I known for being a person who makes promises? And they can't keep them? It's a hard question, right? To evaluate yourself. I can't evaluate that for you. Does, does the truth radiate from you? Or is it something you're always grasping at that you can't reach? A hard question. As I was preparing this, I had to ask myself that question. Something that I think we should all be challenged with. But he continues in this in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vow you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is the, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Ooh, there's some good stuff there, right? What does that even mean? And sometimes we'll just glance over these things and we're like, okay, you know, it seems pretty straightforward. Don't make vows, don't make oaths, 
There's much more to this. But the question I think we have to ask is what is an oath? What is a vow? I don't think, I don't think we're, uh, uh, this is something that is contrary to us or like, what is even that? I mean, in our world today, think about all the different things that we vow to, that we make oaths to, that we swear to. It's pretty common even today. In our marriage, what do we do? We make vows to our spouses, right? Politicians, they break oaths all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, it happens, right? It happens. I mean, even teenagers, right? I work with teenagers. It seems like every day I hear some teenagers say, I swear to God, <laughs> not maybe understanding the gravity of that. Us adults, we're not too far behind that either, right? But why do we do it? And why is Jesus so condemning? Why is he condemning this? I, I know this might come surprise to you, but people are naturally, in our human nature, we're dishonest. It's like it's ingrained in us to authenticate what is said by an oath. I swear on my life. I remember growing up as a kid, right, and something would happen, and they'd be like, I don't believe you. I swear on my mom. <laughs> I'd say that all the time. I'd swear on my mom. I swear on my baby sister. I, I think I made that one a lot. <laughs> I swear on my dog, I swear on my Pokemon cards, right? <laughs> Anything I could get my hands on, I swear to that, right? Believe me, believe me, believe me, right? And it, we're making promises on things that we have no business doing sometimes. And it might seem strange that Jesus is saying this here, but this is something that was very common back then. The religious leaders did the same thing. They would say things like, you know what? I swear on the temple. I swear on Jerusalem. I, I, they even said, I swear on the gold of the temple. I find that one hilarious. Like, okay, the gold on the temple. You don't even belong to you. Why, why are you making that promise here? And they're making promises that they couldn't keep. But they wouldn't. It was very rare that someone said, I swear to God. Hmm. That seems really dumb to us. But see, there's two different types of oaths, and actually, it's even 2,000 years later, it's in our culture today, these two different oaths. There was what's called a binding oath and a non-binding oath. One of them, and it's interesting because a lawyer came up to me earlier and we started talking about this, and he's like, that's exactly right. There's what's called an obligatory oath and a non-obligatory oath. The obligatory oath is the one, like a contract you sign. Is this signature? Did you sign this? Yes, but I didn't read the 10 pages that were in fine print there. It doesn't matter. You signed it. It's obligatory, right? To them, to swear on God was obligatory. It was a absolute binding oath. Uh, and even more interesting is if someone swore to you and you had a witness that this person swore to God or multiple witnesses that they swore to God that they were gonna do something or perform something or whatever it was and they did not fulfill it, you could take that person to court and you can have them prosecuted for not fulfilling their oath to God. But if they said, hey, I swore on the, the gold of the temple, you know I, doesn't, I don't belong, that doesn't belong to me. <laughs> it was non-binding. And so here it is, and, and what was even more interesting about this, listen, if, if you swore to God that someone did something like murder or rape or stealing or anything like that, and it came out that you were lying, you would be prosecuted for what crime you're accusing them of. It was murder and it was the death penalty, and you swore to God that someone did it and it came out to not be true, you could get the death penalty. Isn't that interesting? A lot of us are like, wow, that would solve a lot of problems. 
That would be interesting if that was the truth today. But sadly, our human nature, it doesn't change anything. People will still lie under oath or anything just to get out of it, just to see how far they can get. So again, it's, it may seem weird to us and we may think like, you know what? Uh, their, culture, their culture is much different than ours. It, it, we're not that way, right? But what's interesting is I find it, I find it kind of crazy that even then they were living in a life that it was all about what you could get away with. How far could I go? How could I manipulate the situation to fool you to get what I want? And it was like this game that they played in doing that. That doesn't sound familiar, does it? How can I twist it? How can I get it to fit my narrative? I mean, today people, people are m- much worse at lying than they were then, right? How about 50 years ago? 50 years ago, are people, were people uh, less lying than they are today? Goes in that idea, are we still in the same boat when it comes to our integrity today? Are we worse? Is the contrast greater? Here's a little test for you. I got a, in the last service, they didn't, they didn't get it. So here, here's a test of y'all's knowledge. See if you can guess who said this. Let us begin by committing ourselves to the truth, to see it like it is and tell it like it is, to find the truth, to speak the truth and live in the truth. Anybody think they know it? Who said it? Richard Nixon. Isn't that interesting? Richard Nixon. And if you're, if you're too young to know, and I, I'm, I'm kind of there with you, right? I wasn't in the days of Richard Nixon, but I know the history. Richard Nixon was one of our presidents. And was he known for being truthful? Sadly not. And so nothing new under the sun is what I would say. The problem today might be different, a different shade but we're underneath the same old rotten tree of the problem of me and you. That not only do we struggle with dishonesty, but we honestly wanna be dishonest. We want that sometimes. And that's something that we have to fight. And this is what Jesus is getting at. You know what he's saying? It's like saying, you know what? Um, I didn't say what I I would do, but you know who's the real idiot here? You for believing me. And, and church, this is important. I'm speaking to us, the church as a whole universally here, not just Bethany, because it's so important that we get this individually, but also corporately here. Because you know what? You might say that to somebody, well, you shouldn't have believed me. What ends up happening is you break the trust and they say, you're right, I'm an idiot for believing you. And it will never happen again. And it fractures those relationships and we have to be better, and we can do better. And that's why Jesus is calling us out on this. He wants us to be people of integrity, people of trustworthiness and truthfulness. But here's the question. Is there an oath that is binding and non-binding? Are there things that are obligatory and non-obligatory? Well, what did he say in that passage? He says, what is God and what is ours? Can I swear on my Pokemon cards, Right? Is that good? I own those, right, God? Well, let's go through them. Heaven, God's home, his throne, right? Earth, it's God's footstool. Jerusalem, it's God's city. The hair on your head, God put him there. 
And if you're David or Thad, he took them away, right? (laughs) But truly though, right? Who owns it? And you know what's funny is, can you imagine someone saying, you know what, I could dye my hair though. You think God's gonna get to you one day? He's like, whoa, I didn't even notice you. (laughs) You can't fool him. You can't fool him. The problem that Jesus is getting at here is that if I'm characterized by lying, you have to offset your life by a vow or an oath. I promise by God that I'm telling the truth here. And there's something wrong. If you have to vow and to offset a life of deceit, something's not right. Even James, who's echoing what Jesus said here. I love this. And if, I, I challenge you to do this. If you like the book of James, I love the book of James. He is literally taking the principles in, uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount and he's writing more on them. In this one, he summarizes it even more. And he says this in James 5, 12. He says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Pretty straightforward, right? But it's easy to say, hey, that's not the world we live in though, Billy. You know, you don't understand. I'm a, I'm a contractor and, you know, I have, to give that, I have to give that quote that's a little bit lower because I won't get the job, even though I know it's gonna cost so much more. You know, as lawyers, we don't, we don't really lie. We're just kind of bending the truth or not revealing the whole truth. Yes, it is hard. This is extremely hard when you really think about it because our culture and their culture was riddled with the you do use, right? Fake it till you make it. Whatever it takes to get on top. Hey, did the ends justify the means? It's easy to say these things on this side of eternity. And yet here God is calling us to live lives of truthfulness, that goes beyond our everyday citizen. I mean, you think of that phrase, you know, the one that we're probably most familiar with this. Anybody like law and order and courtroom shows, anybody like that? Yeah, right? It's okay, you don't have to be ashamed. (laughs) Um, Those are interesting, right? And I think we like to see like, hey, how did they manipulate the system? How'd they get away with it, right? But almost every one of them, what do they have? They have someone putting their hand on the Bible and say, do you uh, swear to uphold the truth and nothing but the truth so help you God? Some people just affirm it. I affirm to tell the truth. I won't swear on the Bible. We'll get into that here in a second. But do people, does that make people honest? Are people honest? In these shows that we watch, right? Are people honest when they have to put their hand on the Bible and promise as much as they need to be sometimes? Let me share an example with you on this. Long ago, there was, uh, they used to uh, do a railroad crossings a lot different, right? They weren't the bells and dings and whistles and gates coming up and down. Instead, they would have a person come out and swing a light back and forth to tell you that there's a train coming. And one day there was an accident. So the judge called forth the attendant and he asked him a question. He said, he said, hey, were you there that night? Do you swear on the Bible, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So it'll be God, yes. And he says, were you there that night? And he says, yes. He says, were you swinging your light? Yes. He says, okay, go have a seat. And he goes and he sits next to a person. He says, whew, man, I'm so glad they didn't ask me if the light was on. See, Right? But you know what the world, they would say, they're like, look at what he got away with, right? Oh man, he sure did fool that judge. He didn't ask him the question. 
But see, that is the mentality that our world has. It's not what we're called to do. In fact, I would say, you know what? You can lie to the judge. You can lie to the great judge. You could tell him anything you want, but the difference is, is you'll never fool him. We have to be careful with this. In fact, I would say it this way. We have to be careful because there's a pendulum here. And I loved how David said this last week about legalism. Righteousness can be confused a lot of times, a a life pursuit for righteousness, right? And there's this pendulum where you could be like the guy in the story I told you where where he lived a life of like uh, uncaringness about telling the truth, right? He had an apathy about it, right? What can I get away with mentality? That's one end of the spectrum. And then there's another end of the spectrum where we could have self-righteousness pompous attitude of, yeah, I know what's right. You live it. See the pendulum? And, and, and sometimes we go to that, those extremes too many times and we have to be careful. Maybe you gravitate to one end or the other, but I want to challenge you with this because there is a place where I think is in the center of this, where we live a life and we have a desire to live a life that is trustworthy and true. In a way, it's kind of interesting how you think of the Sermon on the Mount and how they flow into one another, right? They seem like they're kind of disconnected, but the more you chew on it, you're getting to the motive of things. And you ever heard the one? It's probably one of the most quoted parts of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, take the plank out of your own eye, right? And don't point at the other guy's uh, you know, log in his. Is that what it says? You know, what's interesting is it's one of the most misquoted passages in the Bible because people like the first part, do not judge, lest you be judged. And they don't keep going. Start with you so that you can help your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I hope to get into that into the series to come, but, but that's so important, right? And C.S. Lewis, he, he said it well too here, what I'm getting at here today. And he's saying, a man can't be always defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. Does it say that we should never defend the truth? It's not what it says. But there must be a time that we should feed on him. Instead, we're to show people, to ask them to come and see for yourself the truth that I have found, that has given me life and set me free. In a way, it's like we're called to be obsessed with living in the truth. You ever meet people, they say, I'm obsessed with the truth. Well, as Christians, first, let's start with being obsessed with living in the truth, not half-truths or what might be true or what I want to be true. My friends are nodding now because they're like, Billy, you need to hear this, right? Because I'm that type of person. I'm drawn to the speculative, the possibilities of different things, you know, all the conspiracies. I love the theories of how God may have knit us together or how he put the universe together. I love that stuff. Anybody with me? I love it, Right? I love studying science and how, how it might have been. There's nothing wrong with those things. Don't get me wrong. Because on the flip side, I also love how, to study how Satan might be at work here. Big on might be at work. And that, is he at work? Absolutely. He wants to confuse people. He's the author of evil. He's the father of lies. That's Satan. He wants to manipulate us for sure. But can I know with certainty what exactly he is doing? No. Does that mean I don't warn people? No, I'm not saying that either. Here's a better way to look at it. What is my life revolving around? Is my life revolving around understanding the speculative theories? Or 
Is it the truth of certainty that I can know without a shadow of a doubt? See, it's easy to get off center of that. But you don't see, you don't see that this might be going on. This might be happening. Okay, I get it. And I, we, could, we could pay attention to that for a second. But what can I know with all certainty? And here's even a better question. Is there something that I can know with all certainty? I got good news. It's called the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And yeah, you might get old and stuff like that to you. Like we hear this every Sunday. It's, it doesn't get old. It's the greatest story of all time. The good news that Jesus came to make a way back to him, to save and seek the lost, the sinner, and give us life and life to the full, that we can know him and have a relationship with him for all eternity. Those are big words. You know, I can sit here and I can say, I promise you, but I don't have to do that because God promises you. Isn't that interesting to think about, right? Here's Jesus, and I don't think he's trying to be legalistic, black and white. He's trying to point to a heart issue that the Jewish people have, and even we have today, of living a life that is truthful. But yet, here's God, and he's making a promise. In fact, he goes as far to call it an oath. Let me read this for you. Hebrews 6, 16, it says, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all the arguments. Motive right there, right? Verse 17, it says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised and he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who have, uh, who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for, our, for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtains where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. There's a lot of good stuff there. And I could have just read the first part, but man, sometimes it's just good to read scripture. Be reminded of how it's so life-changing. And there's a lot there I could get into, but here's what I, is the amazing truth I want you to grab today. God wants me and you to be encouraged that there is hope and there is one who has gone before us and that he is the truth and we can find rest in him. And he goes as far to put his word on it. Think about what it means to swear again. To swear on something really means that you have greater trust in what you are swearing on than on yourself. What does it say? He said, people swear on someone greater than them. And what God promises though, he promises on himself because there is nothing greater than him. And we could find rest in that. And you might walk away from here and you're like, okay, I get it. Don't make oaths. I won't swear on anything. If I ever get to the courtroom, I'll, uh, I'll just affirm it. That's not the point. That's not the point here. Jesus is pointing that you can't hide who you are from God. And you have to be honest first with him and yourself and how to find righteousness and feed, feed on it. Your soul can feed on that. You know, you could be a rigorous rule follower. Some people that just comes easy to, right? I always struggled with that. Being a rigorous rule follower. 
You know, you think of like Mennonites, awesome people, right? If you ever talk to Mennonite, they're awesome people. Quakers, interesting people too. Um, in our community, we have Amish people who are the same way. And you know that, I don't know if you know this, but they will not take an oath or swear on anything because they take this passage incredibly, incredibly literally. You know who did too? The Pharisees. I'm not calling them Pharisees, but they did. And they took an oath so seriously, but as long as it fit their narrative. They changed the way they committed to things, but they didn't let their commitment to God change them. So the point is, Jesus wants to say that oaths and swearing, it, it, can, have some, it can have some cultural purpose, okay? And I'm not saying you shouldn't swear on the Bible, because really, these people don't know you, right? They don't know who you are. Is your yes good to them? Could be. Hopefully, they'll take you on that merit. Is your no as good as a no? Maybe. But for me, it is. And hopefully, for you, it is as well. But if you make a commitment, you have to mean it. And that's why commitments are important. And I don't think I would ever tell anybody like, hey, you gotta listen to the Bible. When you're getting married, don't take your vows, okay? You're not supposed to vow on anything. It's not what he's getting at again. But think about that for a second. What a vow is in marriage. It's a beautiful ceremony, right? You're getting to this point and maybe you've been in that situation and um, me and my wife laugh because we don't know where we did with our vows. We wrote them out where they're so poetic and they're good and can't find them. <laughs> maybe that's you, right? But think about what a vow is. It's a commitment. It, it's saying like, hey, I promise. And yeah, in our human ability, we fail that sometimes. We fail at that. But I'm gonna come back to that commitment that I made to you. What if I told you, hey, that's one of the greatest commitments you can ever make in your life, yeah. I love walking people through that. But what if I told you there's even greater commitment that we can lean on and someone else is committed to us? That's what God is getting at here. He's promising to love us, to hold us, to take care of us he's watching over us, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I love that. 16, what does it say? People swear by someone greater than themselves. And I read that, and I was challenged by it. And I said, you know what, God? You're the greatest thing I could ever swear on. In a way, I say, God, I swear you are the greatest. I swear you are God and I'm not. I swear you are life. I swear you are good and I'm not. I swear that your understanding is greater than mine. I swear that you are the truth. But ironically, I don't need to because you are good. But I wanna be committed to you just as you're committed to me. You love me so that I can love you. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe today is the day that you come and you say like, hey, um, I struggle with honesty. I haven't been real with God. And yeah, I know I'm not fooling God with the life that I'm living, but I haven't been honest with him. I wanna challenge you to know that we don't serve a father who says, shame on you, but opens his arms wide and says, come to me who's true. That's what I love about our Lord and Savior. He's made, he made a way back to him through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
So we're gonna get into a time of prayer here in a second. I'm gonna be in the back corner. Amy Baxley is gonna be back there with me if you're a lady and want somebody to pray with. I wanna just say, here, pray with you. Don't have to pray with you. If you wanna just stay here and sit and think about what is the things that you're holding on to. And maybe this will be the time, and if you have never done this, to say, I want to commit my life to you, Lord, because you've committed to me. You've made a way back to the Savior. And you say, God, I wanna know you. Because here's what's interesting, right? I could say this with all certainty. I could even swear by God that every, every person in this room's knee will bow. And every person ever live, his tongue will confess that God is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. My prayer is that I don't have to swear by God and that you know that and you say, hey, my yes is yes and my no is good as no. And you lean on the promise of scripture, not my promise, because he promises that will happen for everyone. But it's very important that it happens on this side of eternity and not the next. Before, start here. Start here. Is he the king? Is he the truth, the way and the life for you? Like I said, we're here for you if, we, if you want someone to pray with. But church, I wanna challenge you as well. I wanna ask you during this time, I want you to pray and say, hey, I don't wanna be about just defending the truth, which is well and good, but more so I want to feed on your truth, Lord, and the people, and that people will find the way to you by my life and how it exuderates your love. Man, wouldn't that be incredible? I think that's what it means when it says hunger and thirst for righteousness because we know how good it is. Church, I believe if we do that, if we come to people like that, many people like BW who we prayed for before and all the people we've been praying about reaching this year, many will come to know the Lord through those, those type of things. So I pray that you consider that as well. Let me pray for you. God, I come to you. God, I thank you that your promises are good. I thank you that we don't have to swear, Lord, that your truth can come in and live in us and that our yes could be yes and our no could be no. Lord, help us to live lives that are accountable to that though, that lean on your promises and lean on the fact that you're good enough. And Lord, if, if there's someone here today who doesn't know that truth and doesn't know that you're king and that you're Lord of this world and Lord of their life, Lord, I pray that they would come to know you today, that there would be nothing that holds them back. And maybe you're breaking through those barriers and maybe there's confession that needs to be made too, Lord. I pray that all the strongholds are laid at your feet today and we leave this room as new people, people of you. All these things I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.